This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and welcome to episode 29 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, Discovery's co-founder Adrian Gore opens a window into a post-coronavirus future. Signia's founder, Magna Wizikcha, explains how her company has become the biggest individual shareholder in Oxford University's COVID-19 vaccine. We'll also find out how the cruise industry spread and hid the coronavirus and how consumer brands are betting on whether new shopping habits are here to stay. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. First in the COVID-19 headlines today, global infections of the coronavirus are still on an upward curve with a total number of currently infected patients at 2.2 million. 98% of them classed as in a mild condition, but just over 50,000 described as serious or critical. According to worldometers.info, a total of Almost 1.5 million cases have now been closed, but that 18% of these, 250,000, did result in death, the others, though, in full recoveries. The United States recorded another 413 deaths Monday, taking its total to just over 69,000, with the UK's 228 deaths on the day the second highest of any country. There are almost a million active cases still in the United States, with the UK second highest in the world with 161,000. But a surge of 10,000 today took Russia into third spot, with 125,000 confirmed infections. China reported just 481 active cases and no deaths for any day in the past fortnight. South Africa and Egypt are both on an upward trajectory and have the highest reported cases in Africa at just under 7,000 each. Cape Town headquartered Signia has emerged as the largest outside shareholder, with 16%, in the company which is commercialising Oxford University's patents and inventions, including the breakthrough COVID-19 vaccine that is being used currently in human trials. On BizNews' Rational Radio today, Signia founder and chief executive Magda Wirjikcha explained that she's been watching the tightly held fund for some years and moved swiftly to acquire stakes sold by asset managers which were hit by large outflows of investor funds. We'll have more of that story and how Signia came to be such a significant shareholder later in this episode. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa says that the country's five-week lockdown dramatically reduced the number of COVID-19 infections and related deaths. In his weekly emailed newsletter that was sent out today, Ramaphosa compared South Africa's experiences with those of Italy and the United States. 46 days after reporting its 100th coronavirus case, South Africa has less than 7,000 infections. That compares with 140,000 in the similarly populated Italy at the same stage of its cycle and 700,000 in the United States. 
But the president warned that the danger is a long way from being passed as the country has, quote, not nearly, unquote, reached the peak of its infections. Inside COVID-19, Compass News. Discovery's chief executive and co-founder Adrian Gore is one of those rare beings who always seem to be ahead of the curve. He has long evangelized concepts that were foreign to most businesses, like embracing complexity and the championing of encouraging customers to change their behavior by sharing tangible benefits thereof with them. As you'll hear from highlights of last week's video talk that he gave to a local community, Gore has also been thinking deeply about the world and how it will be after the COVID-19 crisis is passed. In this wide-ranging commentary, which moves from SMEs to South Africa's rating as one of the top five governments in handling the crisis, Gore provides a considered perspective of South Africa's future. I'm not one to quote Vladimir Lenin, founder of the Soviet Union, not, not one of our most uh, impressive leaders, um, but he made a, an amazing remark that I read in the context of COVID-19. And he said there are decades when nothing happens and there are weeks when decades happen. Um, and to a large extent, that is kind of what we're living with. We've seen depressions in the past and recessions in the past, the global financial crisis of 2008, the dot-com crash of the late, of the late 90s. This is a very different uh, situation. Those recessions were caused by often bad behavior of the financial sector, the housing bubble that crashed, bad behavior around the dot-coms that boosted ridiculous valuations to company shares that then crashed. This is very different. This is a, a problem of the real economy, of the mom and pop store, of the, of the spas shop, of real people, not big institutions. Companies like us are out there to serve the real economy. We exist because people are working hard in restaurants, running spas or shops. It's that where this thing is going to have an impact. I mean, shutting down the economy is really, really particularly dangerous to the real economy, uh, as I put it. So we know there are 550,000 small and medium enterprises, SMEs. We know they employ about 6 million people. And the critical thing, and people always need to know this, is that it's not big corporations that create jobs. We don't. Big corporations are not entrepreneurial. They don't create jobs. Entrepreneurship and job creation is in the SME space, and the SME space is vulnerable. Our statistics show that 45 to 75% of SMEs can't last over one to three months in this, in this kind of state. So SMEs are particularly vulnerable. I think as we move from a level five to level four, so the kinds of things we can do, it is critical that we get SMEs working again. I mean, I was very encouraged by the president's 500 billion rand stimulation package. I think it's remarkably intelligent. I think the fact that it goes through the banking system to a large extent means that there's existing infrastructure screening of how it can be done. And I think it will be controlled very, very well. But we've got to do more for SMEs. As part of the SME fund, we made a call to, to big business through the CO initiative that big corporations like, like ours and others need to pay SMEs now. Whatever is owed, pay them. There's a process in the environment where large corporates often pay on 60 days or 90 days. Government does the same. And it means that cash flow for SMEs is particularly difficult. It's proven from the research. It's one of the most difficult issues for an SME and one of the reasons for failure. So one of the calls we made is by last Monday, big corporations should have paid. If you owe an SME money, 
get it paid, get it done, so that we inject liquidity into the environment. There are many corporates that have done it. Many corporates will hopefully will do it. I'm proud that Discovery has done it, and we have paid exactly whatever's outstanding will continue to do so. But we need to do more. We have a scheme, the Discovery Health Medical Scheme, to offer SME some kind of contribution holidays if we can, and of course, I'll have to pay that over time. We also worked with the Discovery Health Medical Scheme to try and help doctors. Doctors are one of the most critical SME groups that we have. We um, freed up essentially about $3 billion of liquidity through the scheme to kind of prepay doctors, in effect. We know that doctors will come on stream again, they'll earn again, they'll claim again, and therefore we can forward that money in advance. Unfortunately, that scheme is not, it's still kind of caught in the regulatory process. It's not a normal structure and it's needed regulatory oversight, so we continue to push on that front. But the point I guess I'm making is that we don't know the effect in the economy. I always am an optimist. I think we'll muddle our way through this. But I guess if the old and the sick are vulnerable from the virus, I would guess the analog um, in the economy of the SMEs, because I think SMEs are vulnerable, and we need to do, as the private sector, as, as big business, and certainly as government, uh, all that we can to help SMEs through the space. I'm hopeful that we can. Uh, when you think about scenarios and scenario planning, the typical way to think about that in a corporate sense, or however you plan your life, is to consider a bunch of scenarios and attach probabilities to them. The late economist George Shackle um, had a fantastic theory called potential surprise theory. It kind of used a scenario plan at Shell many, many years ago, and kind of found that scenario planning in its traditional way is, is basically limited. You've got to predict all the potential scenarios. You've got to assign probabilities to them. For those of you statistically minded, probabilities need to add up to one. So you've got an additive problem unless you can think of all the scenarios up front. And his point is that you need to think more about possibilities in an unbounded way rather than probabilities in a bounded set. So think about plausibility rather than probability. And therefore, Think in a much broader way about the potential bad things that can happen, but I think more importantly, the potential good things that can happen out of COVID. I, I would argue that certainly in my journey, I've tried to always do that in the, in the context of our organization, try not to think necessarily linearly, but think about plausibility, possibility in an unbounded way. And I think you should think about this in, in a post-COVID world. So a few points I'd like to make. These are common themes, but, but just to add a few points to some of the possible futures that we may face. And this is predicated on a fairly optimistic view that will muddle through this economic uh, difficult time. The first one is the concept of a world of we versus I. Uh, there was a fantastic article you may have read by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs in The Guardian just, uh, I think, a week or two ago, where he makes the, the factual point that whenever societies are prosperous, they become very self-interested. People become focused on the I. When societies get into difficulty, the World War, the Great Depression, we become a collective. It's about we, and that's, that's a healthy thing. When we think about we in a, in a very collective way. And if you go through history, you'll find that whenever there's been great disruptions of negativity, the World War II, the Great Depression, some amazing collective things have happened. The NHS in the UK was formed in 1948, post the Second World War. The New Deal was formed by Roosevelt just after or during the Great Depression of the 30s. So it's during these times that we, we become a we, we become far less focused on the iron, far less self-interest. That's a great opportunity for us. Rabbi Sachs talks about five levels of we that he hopes remain after the, in the post-COVID world. The first is kind of the we of global human solidarity. It's a remarkable time. All of us around the world are experiencing the same things. I've been on calls and meetings today with people in China, with people in, in the US. We all discuss the same thing. We have the same fears, the same grief, the same concerns. We're experiencing similar kinds of lockdown experience. So for the first time, you have this kind of global solidarity around what we're experiencing. It's, it's, it's of course, tragic, but at the same time, we are in this thing together and you feel part of a, a profound collective. He also makes the point, I think, beautifully about the we of humility. 
that no matter who you are, no matter what your resources are, your technology you employ, where you live, this one little virus has cut us to our knees collectively. We're on our knees and we're in this thing together. And then he talks about the collective we of hope, that as a collective we need to have hope. And I do think there's something about a world of we that is, of course is much, much better than a world of I. And I think in the South African context, if you think about the New Deal and about things like the NHS, what will we do in this time? I think leadership needs to think about poor people in a different way. We need to try and change structures in a way, to change levels of inequality. And hopefully, if we can do something from what's happened here, I think that will be a good thing. And then the second issue of plausibility rather than probability is South Africa itself. I think that our president has done remarkably well. I was chatting to a dean of one of the public schools of health uh, in the U.S. who was telling me that, uh, in their view, our president and our government has been in the top five of how they've dealt with COVID-19. Um, and to a large extent, if we get through the economic issue, our country could emerge. This is a relative issue of competitive in a good space, in an optimistic space. So chatting to a colleague in Germany, a fantastic business leader, made the point to me, if you look at how Germany has dealt with COVID-19, very, very good healthcare system. Death rates are, are low. They've done a good job. They may emerge in a very competitive space relative to other countries. And I hope South Africa can do the same. I don't mean to make light of a tragic situation, but I guess that if we manage this well, our esteem could be lifted, our optimism could be lifted, and we could come out of this hopefully uh, in a strong place. It's not implausible. And so in the realm of plausibility, I think that is a future we should hope for. The third point uh, that I think is important, plausible future, is the world of science and fact. The world has drifted away from experts. We've drifted away from science and fact. We've drifted towards just trading and fake news and you know, everyone's opinion counts. There's no greater illustration of this as Dr. Fauci in, in the U.S., who I think is seen as kind of that humble sense of what works, what doesn't work, what is science and what is fact. And I think we've lost that. I was at a business dinner of some of, uh, I think, a thousand or so business leaders in the country, and there was a fantastic talk on entrepreneur, and he asked the audience, it was quite remarkable. He said, tell me, how many business people here are engineers? And remarkably, not one person put up their hand. Not one engineer, not one scientist in the room. Isn't that remarkable? You can't build an economy without engineers. You can't build an economy without science. You can't build an economy without fact. I'm a financial person. I'm, I'm not an engineer, and I hope I'm not uh, being disparate or patronizing. I'm making the point that science and fact and experts is where we need to drift to as a world. And I do think COVID-19 is making it clear that you can't hide away from fact. And to, to a large extent, I think the new heroes, the new patriots are not soldiers and not money. It's about maybe science and fact. I think that's a good thing. And then the fourth plausible thing, I think, is that uh, sensitivity to the climate, I think, will accelerate. There are many reasons for that, but I, I think maybe anecdotally, we have seen individually that the world can change like this. You think about fears about Cape Town being flooded. You don't really see it in your mind's eye, but having lived through what we're living through today, it's kind of, it's clear that the world can change in front of us. And I think, therefore, that climate and those kinds of concerns that I think are good concerns will be much more real. And then the fifth point is, is kind of the rush to an online world. That pace is going to accelerate. Um, and I think regulations that stand in the way of the online world are going to be swept aside. Telemedicine and healthcare in the digital space is going to dramatically accelerate. And I think any of these petty issues not to allow it will be swept aside. We've seen that now. We've, if, if you followed some of the stuff we've done, we have this online uh, doctor consulting service. It's had a whole lot of issues with regulation over many years. If the doctor first has to see the patient and you can't allow this. And of course, but there's validity in that, but that's being swept aside. It's just too powerful a technology uh, to be held back by regulation like that. We're moving into the online world of telemedicine, and it's going to move very, very quickly. Behaviors 
will change. I was chatting this argument to one of the leaders, one of the large technology companies. They're preparing for a world of, of this is not about technology. The technology was available for years and years. It's about behavior change. The same is going to happen in education. The same is happening in dating. I think that socializing and dating is going to accelerate online. And again, uh, I think there's a lot of statistics around that. And then critically, the world of work, I think, will move online. Um, I don't share the view that everyone will be at home. And I think you still need to get out there. You have to hustle. You have to meet people. You've got to, I think you do need to be out there somewhat. But I do think that meetings uh, will be much more local. I do think that using Zoom and these kind of technologies will happen. But I think that traveling long distances, I've spent my life on a plane, and many of you have done the same. I think that that's, it's going to still happen but at a far lower rate. I think the climate effect and the, the effect of people understanding that you don't need to do that to get your work done is going to change the world of work. So I, I think that a post-COVID world that I think is fantastic is a shift dramatically online. And then the final point I'd make is that a plausible issue is that the tyranny of habit is going to disappear. This world of a four-minute manager, sleep three hours a night, be as effective as you can. I think we're going through a profound time now in this lockdown of understanding that life is more authenticity than just chasing time, that connections you make, the time with family, the time at home has value, and that it's plausible that our value system changes somewhat into something that is hopefully more profound. I guess I want to make the point just to end off here that plausible versus probable is a personal thing. Uh, the futures I'm kind of outlining here, they could happen at a societal level, but to an extent, I think these are futures you would choose individually. This is attitudinal. Taking plausibility to reality is a personal quality. It's about your own leadership and what you think is important in your context, in your business, in your family. In the case of discovery, I have to say to you that we share concern about, about the future. We're concerned particularly about our customers, about the affordability. But we are preparing for a COVID world where we are more relevant and we, we're trying to look clearly at opportunity. I think for us, it's pretty clear. Health is going to be more important. Healthcare will be more important and health insurance will be more important in the post-COVID world. I think the concern about premature death will be more important. I think wellness and immunity will become more important. What we're seeing here amazing in this COVID period is the stuff that we've been trying to do, uh, behavior change to make people less diabetic, all those kinds of things have been in the context of non-communicable diseases. What we're seeing now from, from the statistics is an infectious environment where the same concerns happen. So all the behaviors that we're trying to do affect immunity, and immunity is going to be crucial going forward. So this is a world about wellness and immunity. It's a world about healthy aging, and therefore a time and funding and thinking about how you make decisions about your retirement are going to be in a context of healthy aging. And I think COVID-19 and the statistics coming out of this are going to be clear. And then in terms of, of banking, this is not commercial, but I think one of our concerns when we built Discovery Bank was building an entirely mobile bank uh, that is a sophisticated clearing bank entirely in the face of the mobile. And one of the concerns we had, for example, was how will the world deal with, you know, we don't have our own ATMs, etc. I think that the world will change. Banking is going entirely online. I don't think people are going to go to branches at all. I don't think people want to carry cash. I think cash is a dirty thing. You don't know where it's been in the post-COVID world. And so I think that there are a number of trends that I think will happen in this, this environment um, that will be different. And so we are focusing on, on trying to expand our role. That doesn't uh, minimize our deep, deep concern about how we get through this COVID-19 uh, period. But I, I would say to you that uh, with concern, with caution, with prudence, and with some, some amount of grief, I think we'll muddle our way through and pop out the other side. And I do think that the world will be better post-COVID-19, hopefully, than it's been uh, pre-COVID-19. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. Signia's founder and chief executive Magda Wezikcha is among a handful of South Africa's business leaders who truly sees the world as her oyster. She's also patient 
having waited a few years before spotting the opportunity to acquire the shares of distressed asset managers in what has become one of the world's hottest investment opportunities. On our weekly Rational Radio program today, she explained how Signia has become the largest single outside shareholder in the company which is developing Oxford University's COVID-19 vaccine and is widely regarded as leading the whole world in the race for this ultimate weapon against the virus. Listen closely and you'll also hear that the Oxford scientists are confident this vaccine, which is already in human trials, will work and will be available by September. Good news indeed. Let me take you through the layers of it. Oxford University in 2015 struck a deal with, you know, being a academic institution and not being very good at commercializing the IP that comes out of Oxford. It struck a deal with a selection of top brand name asset managers in the UK, uh, but it includes uh, people such as Goldman Sachs and Sequoias. And they established a company called Oxford Sciences Innovation, which basically owns or at least the right to commercialize all the IP which comes out of Oxford University. And it's an in-perpetuity deal and an exclusive one at that. So basically, you know, the way it works normally is if you have an academic or academic team, they come up with some innovation or some great idea, they register a patent. Um, what happens to the patent is that Oxford University owns 50% of the rights to the patent and the academic staff owns 50%. So in this transaction, OSI then um, takes a look at the patent, and if it deems it to be um, worthy of commercialization and turning into a company, it then sets up a company, and right at inception, before any money is actually transferred from OSI into that company, OSI owns 25% of the shares in that company, Oxford University 25, and the academic staff retains 50% stake. And then, of course, the very next thing that happens is OSI needs to seed that company with capital so that it can hire a management team and start uh, working on developing a product or a service. And, of course, at that stage, the only people injecting capital is OSI. And OSI, when it started in 2015, had £600 million on its balance sheet. So OSI deploys capital. The moment it deploys capital into that spin-out company, it effectively, you know, the percentage ownership of that spin-out changes because Oxford University doesn't typically put in any more capital and obviously neither does academic staff. So by the time these companies are sufficiently sizable, OSI tends to own about 50% of each one of these spin-outs. And of course, as they grow, other validating capital comes along, other investors come along as those, cap- as those companies raise capital. And since 2015, Oxford and OSI have spun out 80 companies. They spin out around 10 companies a year. One of those companies is Basitech, which is a company working on the COVID-19 vaccine. And because they, in fact, have been working on the MERS vaccine, they had, you know, heck of a head start on everybody else. So ownership of OSI shares was a bit of a closed club uh, in the sense that the shares never traded. But uh, last year in the UK, there were few managers, asset managers, who were under stress. 
uh, because of outflow centers. I heard you earlier talking about passive, so some of it had to do with movement of money away from active asset management to passive management, and they became forced sellers of the OSI share, or at least any shares that they had. I have been aware of OSI since 2015. One of our non-executive directors, big shareholder insignia, Andre Crawford Brandt, um, was one of the founding shareholders in OSI. But, you know, knowing about it and owning the shares are two different things. So when I became aware of the distressed asset managers, we approached them uh, proactively and negotiated, uh, you know, three different transactions and acquired the stakes in, in OSI which means that uh, on behalf of, of uh, clients, we now own 16% of OSI, which makes us the largest shareholder. We have a board seat at OSI as well. That's an extraordinary story, Magda. So Andre Crawford Brandt was a shareholder, and he's well known in South Africa for his times at, at Deutsche, and of course he's, he's, done, he's been very successful in the UK as well, and a, a big shareholder of yours. So he, he spotted Oxford Scientific Innovation Fund, or OSI as you call it, he made an investment, obviously spoke to you about it, and then the asset managers who, through, was it through COVID-19 that they were becoming stressed, put their shares so, in the market um, and you bought them? And like one of them was Woodford, Neil Woodford. Ah, yes. So a little bit of a John Bickard of, of the UK, you know, very famous asset manager, accumulated a lot of publicity and a lot of assets mm. on the way up and on the way down. And he was a big shareholder in OSI. So he was my first target you know, when, when he faced large outflows and I knew that he had a pocket of the shares, we approached Woodford and bought his stake in OSI. And then there were a couple of others. David, I can see you just itching to ask Magda a question. I'm, I'm on his side. I'm, I'm just asking where is this in her, is this on her fourth industrial revolution fund or was it uh, held in some of the ETFs or was this just a private holding that they have? Now, so it's held in a couple of appropriate unit trusts, such as the Fourth Industrial Revolution Unit Trust, but we also have an exclusive product called mm -hmm. Signia OSI Fund. Obviously, the, the you know access to these shares is quite uh, scarce, and so we've got a lot more commitments to the fund than we have shares available at the moment. But you know, we, we are hopeful we can negotiate a couple of more deals. It is a shareholding in some of our products obviously the appropriate products, as well as being a standalone product where we offer investors access directly to, to our site shares. So if a private investor, somebody listening to this webinar, wants to invest, mm -hmm. they then apply to become an investor in your OSI fund? They will just invest in a Signia OSI fund. That's correct. And although it's an unlisted investment, what we've done for retail investors in particular is that Signia underwrites the liquidity. You invest in the fund, but if you want to withdraw, we will purchase the shares and, and give you your money back at the prevailing market value. What about this Professor Adrian Hill's vaccine and AstraZeneca's announcement on Friday that they're going to start producing it? Presumably, this will flow through to OSI at some point. At some point. So, so Oxford University, as opposed to you know, many of the American companies, is very adamant that they will never benefit financially as an institution from a global pandemic or a global disaster. So in terms of the deal between OSI and Oxford, there is one little carve-out which talks to global disasters. And so the deal is that, um, you know, Vasitech, which is the spin-out in which OSI has a 45% stake, 
is developing the vaccine, but what they've done is they've set up a separate company underneath Vasitech, which is also part owned by Oxford University directly so that the IP is protected. The idea is that they will develop the vaccine. They have already moved to human trials. I think, I think 6,000 people are now in human trials. And, you know, they have, okay, according to the Vasitech founders, 80% probability of having a successful vaccine by September. According to Sir John Bell, who is, you know, the leading dean of medicine at Oxford, he, he puts the odds at 50-50, you know, and puts, he puts the odds, you know, much higher than on, on any other uh, vaccine in development. So what will happen is that that vaccine will be manufactured and sold at cost until a year after World Health Organization has declared it declared the COVID-19 no longer to be a pandemic, at which stage, you know, it will become a for-profit endeavor. You know, in the meantime, it will be done at cost, if obviously, if it is successful. Wow. But that's just one of the of 80 different companies that OSI owns stakes in. R- Rulof Wurter, who's another famous South African, who's the, uh, I think, the lead... My best um, friend from university days. Oh, okay. So Magnus tells tells us that you guys know each other well uh, from the Sequoia Fund. But, but Magda, um, did, he, did he also encourage you to invest in, in this OSI fund? So I actually saw Rolof uh, in um, San Francisco in September. I went to see him. Uh, but he, he truly was my best friend at university. And then he left, as you know, he left South Africa. He became part of the PayPal mafia and uh, subsequently joined Sequoia. Uh, capital and now heads up Sequoia Capital in the U.S. Sequoia's holding in OSI is interesting because they hold the shares in OSI not in the funds that they run on behalf of the client, but they hold it in the fund, in the partner's fund. So it's the fund that benefits the partners of Sequoia. Not dissimilar to Willis Towers Watson globally. They also have a stake in OSI. They also hold that stake in the partner's fund rather than in, in the client's portfolios. And, you know, part of the reason is such scarcity of those shares. You know, it's been so difficult to get access to those shares that when you do get a pocket of shares, probably selfishly, you, you hold it. What an amazing you know, story, Magda. It really is. Dave, you got a last question for Magda before we let her go? Yeah, I just want to look where else she's, uh, she sees benefit. I know uh, in the health side, you know, what areas, what other areas she's looking at? Uh, just reading such an Adela, he sees um, telemedicine as, uh, as, 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 as another big area. In other words, where you can consult over technology. So I just see it as a, as a huge growth area and something that's going to be very positive down the line. But I'm just very interested in, in where else Magna is focusing her attentions for her private fund. Not for us. We just want to know where her private money's going. <laughs> I think when we invested in May last year, you know, who could have envisaged COVID-19? You know, I'm not going to for a second pretend. But, you know, I'm looking at all the big drivers of kind of impact investing. So if I think of the world going forward, you know, I think that active asset management will have a really tough time. It is having a tough time, you know, overseas. Money is moving to passive. Investors are looking for cheap ways of accessing the market, the kind of, you know, listed markets. And whether that takes the form of, you know, passive investing, beta investing, active investing, it doesn't matter. It will all be about low cost access to market returns. 
On the other side of the spectrum, you have alternative investments. And there, I think, you know, the big focus of most investors is impact investing. So it's anything to do with climate change, anything to do with healthcare provision, affordable education, affordable housing. You know, my particular, and, and technology is the big enabler of being able to deliver that um, in an affordable, accessible manner to, to the masses you know, previously was, was not possible. So we are looking, you know, I am hugely excited about obviously OSI and within OSI, the convergence of healthcare and technology. You know, there are a lot of really exciting companies in that portfolio. You know, I know the COVID-19 vaccine is, is just kind of at the forefront of everyone's mind, but there are some, you know, amazing healthcare type innovations within the OSI portfolio. So, so to me, healthcare will become fo a focus for investors, for government. And what's important about government focus is that government focus comes with grant funding. So, for instance, Vesitec doesn't need to raise money from external investors. It has received um, £29 million from UK government with support for more if they need it. So all of a sudden, you've got kind of, you know, if, if you're an investor, you'll have access to non-dilutive sources of funding in that sphere. So climate change, healthcare, technology. Those are my kind of areas of focus. And the business we're setting up for Signia Offshore is an alternative investments business with, you know, debt at its core. Inside COVID-19 from Business. The cruise industry is under immense scrutiny because of its handling of cases of coronavirus that led to large outbreaks on ships. U.S. lawmakers have opened a probe on Carnival cruise ships. Nine of their ships had coronavirus outbreaks which infected 1,500 people and killed dozens. Countries around the world have barred cruise liners from entering their ports, fearful that they could spread COVID-19, similar to the Diamond Princess, which was quarantined for a long time near Tokyo. In March, South Africa held a cruise liner, the MV Aid Amira, with 1,240 passengers on its way back from Namibia's Wolfus Bay, after a crew member on board the ship displayed symptoms of the virus. The Wall Street Journal's reporter Jackie McNish did an investigation into the role of cruise ships in the spreading of the virus and told Anne-Marie Fatoli that cruise ships are seen to be hotspots of virus infections. What we found as a result of this investigation was that the cruise industry knew by early March that the coronavirus was unlike any other virus we've seen on ships. Now, ships are used to dealing with a variety of, of viruses because these are large floating ships with multiple floors and people stacked on top of each other. So they know as an industry that if there's a virus, it can spread easily. What they knew by early March and what we'd learned from the Diamond Princess situation in Japan was that the virus spread rapidly and it was lethal, that there had been a number of deaths, there had been hundreds of cases, and by early March we knew that this virus was spreading around the world. It had hit Iran, it had hit the Middle East, and it had hit California through the Grand Princess ship. So they knew that the danger signs were there, 
that this spread very rapidly. Uh, studies were already showing more rapidly than it had in other locations, whether it be communities like Wuhan or in other forms of transportation, just by the very nature of these ships and the, and the crammed human conditions. And as a result of that, the knowledge was there, but they continued to sail anyway. And in sailing, they promised and reassured their customers that they had taken extra precautions, there'd be temperature controls, there would be hand sanitizers available. Some promised a sanitizer that could kill coronavirus in 30 seconds. And as a result of talking to many passengers on these ships, temperatures were not always taken. The cleaning, the strenuous cleaning that they promised would take place often a few days before an outbreak was announced. So as a result of all this, I think what you could say that we've learned is that they really strained not to acknowledge the dangers. And once the danger was on board, in some cases, uh, they strained to keep it at bay. And you reached out to the cruise industry for their response, and the Cruise Lines International Association said many other businesses continued to operate in early March. Jackie, how did what was going on on those cruise ships contribute to the spread of the coronavirus? What we have learned through our investigation is that in a number of cases, cruise ships had many passengers and crew members that had influenza-like symptoms. In some cases, they'd arrange the transportation of these ill people to hospitals, knowing that they had acute respiratory problems and in some cases pneumonia, but they did not warn the hospitals. They did not alert the Coast Guards as they required by law that they had uh, people with high fevers and other symptoms, which you are supposed to do. And as a result, they exposed people locally to this virus. They let thousands of people off the ship and into these ports, knowing that, that there was a possibility that there might be a spread of the infection. And we now know that early cases of COVID, uh, initial case in the Cayman Islands and in other communities are traced right back to cruise ships. The worst example would be the Ruby Princess ship in Australia. They were testing passengers for COVID according to an inquiry that's taking place in Australia and they let people disembark. Australia has now traced close to a thousand cases of COVID back to that ship and 28 deaths, which is more than a quarter of their total COVID deaths in one country. A spokesman for Carnival, which owns the Ruby Princess and the Diamond Princess, says the company was responding in real time based on the best information available and that notifying the Coast Guard of a COVID case after the fact was acceptable because it was a medical emergency. Jackie, what are the implications now for the cruise ship industry? Well, they are under a spotlight. Uh, there are a lot of questions about what they knew and when they knew that they had COVID cases on board when there was a spread. I think that they are going to have to answer a lot of questions. There is a criminal investigation uh, into the Ruby Princess situation in Australia. New Zealand is considering an investigation as well. And we've learned through our reporting that Coast Guard officials in California and Puerto Rico are also asking questions as to why cruise ships did not disclose the presence of ill passengers on board with influenza-like symptoms or COVID-like symptoms before they allowed passengers to disembark into those communities. And we should note that Carnival says it doesn't believe it broke any laws. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. Okay, so how has Procter & Gamble specifically been able to stay on top of consumption habits? 
Procter & Gamble is, you know, they're kind of famous and one of the first companies that really became expert in figuring out what consumers do, the really granular behaviors. So this is just one example, but they have, you know, a segment of consumers have allowed them to put little monitors in their washing machines. So, you know, when P&G says people are doing more loads of laundry, they're not just stockpiling Tide detergent. They actually know that, you know, how many loads of laundry these people are doing and how it's increased. And, you know, in addition to that, they have, you know, a company that size is able to, you know, pay for analysts and analyst reports and consultants and focus groups and surveys. And so they just, you know, are, are doing a lot right now to figure out where the consumer is going. How is the pandemic in this stay-at-home era likely to rework how industries conduct business? You know, things like managing their manufacturing and dealing with supply chains, things like that. The answer to that really varies on the question that everyone's trying to answer, which changes are short-term kind of crisis responses versus which changes are more long-lasting. Um, so if it's just a short change, companies are kind of scrambling to maybe, you know, co-produce a product in another plant or switch over their lines, things that are quick and temporary. But if both the, the you know, if the demand's going to grow for the long term or if there's going to be fluctuations as this virus potentially comes and goes, they need to think about things like, you know, do they need to add factory capacity? Do they need to get rid of certain products to make room for others? This has been episode 29 of Inside COVID-19. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.